So we are now uh, up to letter number five of the seven letters written to the churches mentioned in the first chapters of Revelation. We have said this from the beginning, and hopefully it's becoming increasingly clear that although these letters were written to these specific churches at these specific times, the messages themselves, the warnings, the encouragements are applicable to all churches at all times. Funny how that works out. Largely because they're still applicable because people are still people. Uh, We have not, contrary to what some suggest, we have not progressed or evolved our way out of the sin nature of Adam. We just can't get rid of it. If anything, uh, all this new modern technology, all the new mod cons, I mean, we're discovering even more interesting, better, more secretive ways to stumble in sin. We've got an even wider variety of, of options for false god worship, uh, uh, 24-7, 365 access to all sorts of idolatry and sexual immorality, and that's outside of the idol factory that is contained inside. So in a sense, I kind of wondered if these letters written way back then might even be more applicable to us today than they were to the churches then. Ain't progress a hoot. Uh, Let's pray before we get started. Gracious Father, uh, we gather together again today to worship you as our creator and king, as the only God that is God. We pray this morning for the situation in in Ukraine, for the, the heads of governments, that they would act wisely, that they would consider their people and not just their power. We pray for skirmishes and conflicts in other parts of the world we're just not hearing about. We pray for people who are being directly impacted in all of these skirmishes and wars. And uh, even though we, we know that war will bring death, Lord, we pray that you will minimize the loss of life, that, that your people there, the people who are called by your name, would hold fast to their faith. We pray for uh, Janelle this morning, that, that um, her contractions would ease, uh, at least for a few more days, until she hits the, the safe delivery date. Um, and she's asked us to pray for... Uh, her family members, Cameron and Emily. Uh, Cameron's recovering from brain surgery, um, and we pray for his recovery, Lord. Neither of them are believers, so in addition to healing, we pray that this experience would somehow lead them to Christ. And finally, we pray again today that as we open uh, time in your word here this morning, that we would have ears to hear what is being said to us, that we would have the desire um, and the strength to change the things that we need to change to be better witnesses, better ambassadors for you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we have watched charted the progression over the last couple weeks um, for churches that failed to deal with blatant worldliness within the church, within the confines of the church. Pergamum, you know, was, was, was going the way of Israel during the time of Balaam and Balak in the Old Testament. The Israelites were, were slowly being eased into moral corruption and spiritual collapse. They were being far too easily influenced by the culture around them, um, which in their case was the Moabites and their loose women, apparently, and just wanton sexual immorality and idol worship. Um, and that culture embracing, that, that spiritual rebellion cycle, was repeating again in Pergamum in the first century. And every century since. So the church in Pergamum was called to repent, turn back to God, deal with false teachers, 
deal with the backsliders in your midst, repent and clear this up, while it's still a relatively small issue in your church. Well, then last week we looked at the church in Thyatira, or Thyatira, or Tiratira, or however people say this name. It starts with a capital T. This was uh, a town that was perhaps even further along the road to spiritual collapse than was Pergamum. They had a woman in their church who was both in character and deed, who was very reminiscent of Jezebel of old. That evil queen Jezebel who worshipped false gods, who practiced all manner of sexual immorality, um, and even led, perhaps even forced others to participate in all the same things. And the church in Thyatira was tolerating her behavior. They were allowing this to happen inside the church. And, and they, they failed to speak out against it. They failed to do anything about it. And it kind of festered and, and it spread and to the point where the church no longer had any, any kind of meaningful distinction between the words and the deeds of supposed Jesus followers versus the words and deeds of the culture. They looked pretty much the same. And this church received a pretty severe warning about impending judgment unless they repented three times for this one church. The word repent shows up. Well, now we're up to letter five, the letter to the church in Sardis. And we'll see that there's a, there's a kind of a different feel to this letter than the last two. If the letters to Pergamum and church with a capital T detailed an increasing trajectory towards sinfulness, we would expect the letter to the church in Sardis to pronounce even more judgments and describe an even more godless environment. Well, let's see if that checks out or if we're just dumb. Starts with uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we've seen now this is kind of the, the traditional greeting to all of these letters. Uh, there's a reference to the angel of the church, which, which may refer to actually like a, a guardian angel of some sort, or it might just be to the church. So whatever that is, to the angel of the church, write the words of him who has the seven stars. And the seven spirits of God, rather. You'll remember, or you can refer to the handy chart uh, we have more printed back there this morning, um, that seven generally refers to fullness or completeness. So when we read the seven spirits of God, this is a reference to the perfect, complete, full spirit of God. The Holy Spirit. Which infers or implies with it the omniscient, omnipresent power of God. This serves as a reminder, this opening serves as a reminder to the church in Sardis that this message is from the Holy Spirit. It's from God. And those seven stars, you remember in John's initial vision here, he saw Jesus holding those seven stars in his hand, which symbolizes these seven churches, but all churches, all believers, all places at all times. So it just, this reminds this church that this message is from God. It is accurate and it is true. What is to be, what's about to be revealed to you is absolutely true because the Holy Spirit said it's true. God knows all. He sees all. He is in complete authority in all things. And that is immediately reinforced by the next verse. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. I know your works. I mean, that's about as authoritative as it gets. God knows your works. He knows everything you've done. And notice, there really is no positive statement here, like all the other churches start with. 
Every other letter so far has said, look, people, here's some, here's some good things you're doing. Here's some good aspects about your church. But brothers, you've got to deal with these issues. That's not what happens here. This says, I know your works. That is neither a compliment nor an indictment. It's just a statement of fact. I know your works. In fact, it turns out that the real message here is, I know your lack of works is really what he's getting at. We know this because it says you have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. No positive opening remarks. Just to jump right into, you're dead. This church is not off to a great start. So, what are we to make of this uh, appearance? You have the appearance of being alive. This appearance versus reality conundrum. How does this make sense? Well, from the world's perspective, from the, from the, the citizens of Sardis, apparently, the church is doing you know, reasonably okay. By all outward appearances, they have a reputation for, they look like a healthy, happy, vibrant, even church. And we're not really told what that means specifically in that context, in Sardis at that day. If, if, if this letter was written to a church in our culture in our day, this alive but dead thing, you know, that the appearance of life might look something like your church has a nice big fancy building. It looks like you're doing well. You have multiple campuses with all this great technology serving everybody everywhere. This, this modern-day church would have all the programs that we all like to see and have come to expect are the indicators of a healthy, happy, vibrant church. You know, there are classes for every kid, every age group, every affinity group. A happy, healthy, vibrant church has youth groups and singles groups and married groups and senior saints groups and Christian puzzle groups and sanctified sower circles and cardio with Jesus groups and Saturday men's pancake and gun club. All the stuff, you know, that we've, that we've been led to believe constitutes a healthy, happy, vibrant church. So Sardis apparently had like the first century equivalent of all that stuff, whatever that would be. I don't know. I mean, they looked good, and yet, they're dead. So it seems like there's this group of, of people who claim to be Jesus followers, who have this nice, shiny veneer of faith, who might even have a nice little tight, you know, close community, but are in, in actuality doing very little, if anything, to grow in their own faith, very little, if anything, to demonstrate or share their faith beyond they're safe and secured and sanctified walls. They're having no impact on their community. So at some point in their sanctification journey, you know, they, they just took a quick detour off to the rest area, and they thought, this is kind of nice here in this rest area. We'll just pitch a tent here, spend a couple of days. It's nice and safe over here. It's not so bad. Surely, we've done this enough at this point. We're far enough on the journey to have secured our spot in heaven. Let's just pull over here and rest a while. It's got a nice view. Now, we don't know why this happened to the church in Sardis. We're not told what the circumstances were leading up to this. So it, was it trials or, or persecution, suffering that wore them down? We don't know. Maybe it was just a lack of faith at some point, a lack of trust that God had a plan, he had a purpose in their trial and their suffering. 
He was working the plan. He was asking them to be patient and persevere, and they just didn't see it. They didn't understand it. And they just gave up. Life in general wore them down, and their spiritual life followed. So they started just to ease the foot up off the spiritual gas pedal a little bit, and they coasted for a while, and then they coasted some more, and then they coasted, and now they're pretty much at a standstill. I mean, they had prayed the sinner's prayer once, so they had their fire insurance. They were pretty sure about that. That would be enough. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but if you sign up to compete a marathon, there's no medal, there's no acknowledgement for the first person to finish 13.8 miles. doesn't count. There's no medal for the first to finish 19.6 miles. The winner, the only true finishers, are the ones to run the whole 26.2 miles. You can't even say you ran a marathon if you stop at 25 miles. And sanctification is a commitment towards holiness. It's a lifelong commitment towards holiness. It's like a marathon. You've got to run it until you're done. It's a lifelong pursuit. And in sanctification, the finish line is about the time you die. Really, really close. Or give up, apparently. This is, is precisely, I think, what Paul meant when he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Keeping the faith means not giving up, even when you're tired, even when you're worn down. It's not pulling over and camping out in the rest area for a little while. It means you continue to fight, you continue to run, you continue to do the works which were created for you to do. And then the crown is awarded. So in Sardis, they're, they're happy to be thought of as people of faith without really having to be people of faith. They're just hanging out in the rest area, relaxing, you know, making s'mores over there. And they, as long as they have that little Jesus fish on their camper, they're good. They're not running the race. They're not working out their faith. And their lack of works reflects their lack of faith. This church may well be the epitome, the, the poster child for for, oh, forgot that one, James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This seems to be the big challenge for the church in Sardis. I know your works. There's not much to know. You're not doing much which says your faith really ain't much either. Now, Sardis is an interesting place with an interesting history. You can see all the seven churches included here. It's kind of right here in the middle. There's a little lake here, and there's a river. It runs right there, right next to Sardis. The river's called Pactolus or Pactolus, or who knows how they said things back then. It starts with a capital P. And this river was known for its golden sands, very picturesque beach. Well, it turns out that that made them quite prosperous because the golden sands contained gold. It had a lot of gold. Made the city quite prosperous. Sardis was at one time the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, which was likely the very first territory to strike and issue gold coins for use in in the marketplace. In fact, the king at the time, King Croesus, was said to be the ruler of the wealthiest empire in Asia Minor. 
he is believed to have been the primary um, beneficiary, the one who paid the most money for the construction of the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He had some money. So the king, and probably the city, had some wealth. And as a consequence, they'd built these enormous walls, this enormous fortified defense system around the whole city to keep it safe and to keep its wealth secure. Now, Sardis had many of the same issues as all of the other churches in the area we've been talking about. It had temples to false gods, and it had Caesar worship, and it had trade guilds, and all the other things that have been stumbling blocks for all these other churches. They had all of those challenges. But those aren't even mentioned here. Did you notice that? They don't show up. It's interesting that maybe Sardis had more of a challenge dealing with their wealth. Maybe materialism was more of an issue for them. Their relative ease of life. Maybe that was more of a challenge for them than gods or goddesses or trade guilds or whatever. The good life was their idol of choice. It might be the case that the church of Sardis, like the city itself, had prized above all else safety and security and contentment. The church was satisfied with its size, with its buildings or houses, with its you know, programs, whatever those would have been then. They were socially and financially comfortable, and they become spiritually comfortable as well. They'd become too safely smug, maybe too spiritually content. They played it spiritually safe. I mean, why speak up about this issue and put a bullseye on her back? We're just kind of blending in nicely here. And since gold was predominant in the area, it's, it's, it's probably a reasonably well-off group of people. So by the looks of things, by the appearance the church was alive. It was doing well. But we're told they had no works, which indicated a real, vibrant faith. So if faith without works is dead, and it's questionable even as to whether or not it's even faith if there are no works, the church appears to be thriving on the outside, but is spiritually dying on the inside. And the message to them I know your works. You have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Wake up, people. How about a little spiritual assessment here? Wake up. Take inventory. Strengthen what remains before you're completely dead. I mean, you got a pulse now, but it's weak, it's getting weaker. For I have not found your works complete. In the sight of my God. As opposed to, well done, good and faithful servant. I've not found your works complete. You stopped short. You did not finish the race. You started out pretty good, and then you coasted. You rested on your spiritual laurels. You've not completed your work. And then again, we see a very popular word of the book of Revelation, repent. So this, this is a call. Think, think about it, people. Remember the gospel. Remember what you've received. and Remember what you've heard. Remember how it changed your life at one time. Why aren't you sharing that with others? Love God and love your neighbor. Those are the two greatest commands. And just as faith without works is dead, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. Repent. 
That's the clear call to action. It's a pretty stern warning. And then comes the or else part, the warning part. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Hmm. That seems unusual. I mean, to be honest, if you've read through those other letters, this seems a little weak after the warnings of the last few weeks. Remember the warning from last week? It said Jezebel has repeatedly refused to repent, so I will throw her onto a sickbed. I will throw her followers into great tribulation. I will declare her and her spiritual followers dead. That's judgment. But here it says, I will come like a thief, and you won't know when. That doesn't really sound so ominous, does it? I mean, not immediately threatening. That's true, I think, from our vantage point, far removed from the history of Sardis. But I think to the citizens of Sardis, to the members of the church, they would have understood this immediately. Remember I mentioned King Croesus a few minutes ago. He built this enormous fortification, this giant wall around the city. Here's a little glimpse of it here. It was said to be impenetrable, impregnable, impossible. I couldn't think of any more IMP words. It was impenetrable, impossible to overcome. In fact, several invaders had tried and failed to get past these wall defenses, and it didn't work. In fact, Sardis got to the point where they only had, like, you know, a night shift crew. You know, half a dozen guys watching the walls, because nobody could get over The occasional guard, the occasional watchman on the wall. And then in 546 BC, King Cyrus of Persia heard about Lydia and heard about all this gold and decided he needed to have some of that. So he made his move. He began to move towards Lydia. He wanted their gold, their land, their treasure. He wanted the city. Uh, And King Croesus had an army come out and they had a skirmish or two, but King Croesus went back to the safe confines of Sardis, back to their bastion of safety, this big walled environment. And Cyrus knew from history that frontal assaults probably weren't going to work. Those are big walls. So Cyrus set up a siege around the city. He was going to wait them out. He was going to starve them out. We don't really know, but he's got this big siege around the city, and they just wait. And then one day, one of the very few sentries, one of the very few watchmen up on the wall, he was walking his beat, you know, he's just kind of cruising around, and he stopped for a minute, and he took off his shiny brass helmet, because it was very, very hot, and as it turns out, a metal helmet makes it hotter, so he took off his shiny brass helmet, and he set it on the wall next to him, and a few minutes later, as he's relaxing, another random guard came walking by, and they stopped and chatted for a few minutes, and as the first watchman raised his, his arm to wipe his brow, wipe the sweat from his forehead, his arm nudged the helmet, and it fell over the wall. Well, as it turns out, one of Cyrus's men was off hiding in a bush somewhere. You know, you're in a siege. What else, what else is there to do but sit and watch? He's watching this whole thing transpire. So he's watching as this guard who knocked his helmet off, he climbed over the wall, and he followed this particular climbing path down the wall and down the rocky bluff underneath, and he picked up his helmet, and he climbed right back up the same route. And Cyrus's guy knew there's a path. There's a way in. 
So Cyrus reported to his commander. The commander told the king later that same night. Cyrus gathered his elite SEAL Team 6 or whatever he had. His special forces team. And they followed that same climbing path like thieves in the night up the slope, over the wall, into the city where they met very little resistance. Why would there be much resistance? The wall is impenetrable. Cyrus's guys opened the gates and opened the doors and the army came in and took over the city. So smugness, hubris, the contentment of Sardis caught up with the city. They thought they were safe, and they weren't. They were coasting. And amazingly, the city didn't just fall once in this manner, it fell twice. Again in 213 BC, the armies of Antiochus the Great had the city surrounded, looking for some way in, some way over these enormous walls. And they noticed... After a few days, far off in a far corner, vultures were hanging around the wall. I don't mean just, you know, coming down for a few minutes and taking off. They were like, wouldn't leave. So they sent a couple guys over there, and they were checking out. And they found out that this is how the city dealt with their dead. When people died, the bodies were carried up to the top of the wall and thrown off the back. And then the vultures disposed of them properly. Now, as one might imagine, there was a, a smell there was a, an aroma in this particular area, and who would want to stand guard in that area? So this was a relatively unprotected area. And the army of Antiochus found a few skilled climbers who made their way up and over the wall in the dead of night, like a thief, and again, they just unlocked and opened the doors from the inside. Sardis fell again. Now, interestingly, there are several different versions of these stories. Uh, because they're widely known and well-circulated over the years. So some names have been changed to protect probably the innocent. Um, But people knew the history of Sardis. They knew how the city had fallen. So if you're a Christian in the church in Sardis when this letter arrives, and you read about Jesus coming like a thief but you won't know when, you would have an immediate understanding of this. This would make some sense to you. Sardis was conquered by enemies who very much came in like thieves in the night because the city had a false sense of security. I mean, it appeared for all the world that it was impregnable, entirely secure. And eventually they'd let their guard down, literally. They had the appearance of safe, but they were not. They weren't nearly as strong as they thought they were. The church in Sardis would have, hopefully, found the spiritual application in this. But just in case, the message here is, wake up. You think you're safe, you think you're spiritually alive, but your faith is not supported or borne out by your work. Spiritually speaking, you're dead men walking. And we know that looks can be deceiving, right? You can look healthy and reasonably lifelike and have some disease, some issue, So the church in Sardis and churches elsewhere, you're spiritually dead, you're on life support, wake up, it says. Strengthen what little life remains in you, which means repent. Fix the problem. Or I will come against you and you won't know when. I mean, this is literally the idea of when you least expect it, expect it. And when the Lord says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. 
repent, wake up while you still can. Now, did they get it? Did they hear it? Did they respond? Maybe some did. You know, last week we talked about how uh, there's always been this idea of a loyal, faithful remnant of God followers throughout the Old Testament and the New that always seems to be present in every, at every church age. Those who finish the race in every age, every age. There's mention of those who receive and obey the words of encouragement in each of these letters so far, and we see it again here. Although the number of faithful seems to be a little bit smaller in this church than it has been in previous churches. Look at the language here. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. In Thyatira, the encouragement was, to the rest of you who don't hold to this teaching, the rest of you, that sounds like a goodly number. There's a lot of you not holding to this false teaching. In Pergamum, it was some who hold to the false teaching. That sounds like an even smaller number that were off into the weeds. But here in Sardis, there's a handful of names. There's just a couple of people who have not soiled their garments. I mean, this situation is bad. It's not just those individuals in the church that are on life support, but it's the church itself. Well, we see there's some symbolic language here. Those, those faithful few, those, those names I can count on two hands, maybe. Those who have not soiled their garments will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The reference to unsoiled garments and, and white robes is, is poetic. It's symbolic language for those who have remained faithful, who've not fallen for false teaching. They've, they've not given in to the extremes, the pool of worldliness. They've endured persecution and suffering and tribulation to the very end. Those who have remained faithful. They've continued to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. That's a message we heard repeatedly through Paul's epistles. Those who walk worthy will wear the white robes. It's interesting if we skip ahead just a couple chapters. We'll see in Revelation 6 how this plays out. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So this white robe is given as an outward symbol of devotion and faithfulness. It's given to those who have endured and suffered and even died for the name of Christ. Those who have finished the race and completed the works assigned to them. It's part of our eternal reward. It's part of our heavenly initiation. And notice it says, after the giving of the robe, they were called to rest. Rest comes then. We've got work to do now. In fact, I think that's made clear in the next couple of verses. He says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you see again, there's this connection between the white unspoiled robes and those who conquer. There's that word again, conquer. It's in every letter. But this time, it is a verb not a noun. The one who conquers. This is a call to action. It requires effort and commitment to work. 
It is not passive. So the one who conquers is not just the one who makes it through this life of toil without denying the faith. It's not just the one who holds fast, but the one who conquers is the one who does the works God has ordained and established each of us to do. The works for which we were created. The one who conquers is action-oriented. The life we're given here, this is the time to work. The time for rest comes later, as it turns out. And I kind of worry sometimes that, you know, our, our um, materialism, our Western mentality has so influenced us that we've completely bought into the idea of retirement as a birthright, um, and we've come to accept it both physically and spiritually. Now, we may well be justified in stepping aside from our careers. I'm not going to argue that. I'm on board. But we are never justified in stepping away from our calling to walk in a manner worthy. We are called to endure, to persevere, to work, to conquer for Christ until the end of this life. Or, you know, social security kicks in, whichever comes first. Or our kids need to be in so many activities, we just don't have time to do what we were created to do. Or, I mean, we can come up with so many reasons not to be doing the stuff God created us to do. We can see how easy it is to become distracted from our mission. But the one who conquers, the one who conquers will receive this heavenly letterman's jacket. This outward symbol of achievement and endurance, and it'll never get old or get too snug. And more than that, it says our names will go in the book of life. I mean, the book of eternal life. It can never be blotted out. This is eternal security to the one who conquers. And we're worried about Roth or not Roth IRA. Oh, and there's one more conqueror benefit contained herein. If we remain faithful consistently to confess the name of Jesus in this lifetime, Jesus himself will speak up for us. Imagine that. We're standing before God the Father on Judgment Day, and Jesus speaks up for us and says, they're, 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 they're with us. He will speak up for us to the Father and to all the angels. Jesus is going to be our character witness. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So once again, do we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to this church? What does it mean in our own age? What does it mean for the churches in Prosser, for the churches in Washington? Are we spiritually lifelike on the outside, but we're spiritually circling the drain on the inside? How can we tell? Well, for starters, I think we need to periodically, if not regularly, be honest about our own personal spiritual self-assessment. Do a checkup once in a while. How how are we doing? Ask ourselves some questions. Just some examples, maybe. Is the idea of attending church on a regular basis, is it a sacrifice for us? Is it an obligation? Or is it something we do joyfully? Looking forward to the opportunity to gather together with the bride of Christ, to catch a glimpse of future glory where all tribes and tongues and nations are going to worship together. Or do we check our list of reasons not to go today? We want to make sure we rotate them in case anybody asks. 
is the idea of, of tithing, is, you know, giving back to the Lord, just an acknowledgement for what he's given us, whether it's to the local church or to, or to missions or some combination. Is tithing money a challenge for us? Is it hard for us? Or is it something we can do joyfully? Even if it requires a fair amount of trust at times. And if you do it regularly, it will become an issue of trust at times. Man, we could really use this money for X this month, whatever it is. Do we ever think about how we might approach our friend Steve or our coworker Sally with the good news of the gospel? I mean, we know they need it. They desperately need it. Does it ever occur to us to share Jesus with somebody else? Or are we content to just, you know, I'd rather keep them as friends than risk creating any animosity or, or hurt feelings. And so I'm just not going to bring it up. Maybe we don't want to be seen as the religious nut job in, in the office. Are we content to let our church gatherings devolve into a members-only club? We don't invite people because, well, we like it the way it is. It's, it's comfortable. It's safe here. I don't want to be too exposed to, you know, strangers. I don't want to be too vulnerable to other people. So let's just, let's keep, keep it just us four and no more. How about that? Because we know what to expect here, generally. I mean, other people bring in other problems. We like our nice, quiet, peaceful church. You know what else is peaceful? Graveyards. Or, or do we program and structure our ministry goals and our programs to meet just the needs and the wants of the members? Or are we actively looking for ways to bring in outsiders, to, to create a bridge, an on-ramp, for, to make it easier for strangers outside the walls to come into the church? Or we just work to keep ourselves happy here? Are we more focused on the financial bottom line in maintaining a shiny new building? You know, maintaining a good reputation in the community. We don't want to ruffle any feathers. So to speak. Let's, let's not speak out any of these important social issues. We want to keep up a good appearance rather than on teaching and living out the life-changing word of God, the hard parts as well as the easier parts. Now, this is not an exhaustive list by any means. And really, if you think about even the things on this list, there's both a personal component and a corporate component here. You can't really separate those out because what we do affects other people. Think back to Paul's analogy of the church as a body. The body functions best when the eyes work and when the spleen works and when the appendix does whatever the appendix does. So when all of us are actively engaged in our spiritual roles personally, we contribute to the health and welfare of the body corporately. That's when the church is functioning on all cylinders. When we're actually alive, we don't just appear to be alive. But when we start to fail in our roles personally, when we don't contribute as the eyes or as the spleen, you know, we pull over to the rest area for a while. I mean, the other body parts can compensate for a while. We can, we can continue to coast a little bit, but sooner or later, the body will fail. Death is waiting. So as we prepare for communion this morning, Scripture says that this is a, a sacrament, a practice for believers only. There's no shame in not taking part if you've not confessed your sins and named Jesus as Lord.
we can talk with you about that later. But for believers, we're going to allow just a few minutes here, some, some moments of quiet for reflection and self-assessment. You can use these questions or you've probably got a long list of your own. Just try to be honest. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate whatever issues you may be hanging on to. And try to answer the question, am I spiritually coasting or am I actively conquering? Am I spiritually coasting or am I actively conquering? Am I doing the works for which I was created or have I spiritually, you know, retired? Perhaps prematurely. Even if the world sees me as spiritually, spiritually alive, how does Jesus see me? Is my white robe waiting for me or is it waiting to be mothballed over there in the back somewhere? Of what do I need to repent? How do I get back on track? You know, part of the joy of communion is, is knowing and remembering that Jesus died for our sins. So when he says, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and will cleanse us from unrighteousness, not only do we know he means it, but he's the only one who can really do it. So we can bring our prayers and our requests and confess our sins. And God will be just and faithful. So we're going to have a few minutes of, of quiet. I'm going to have the, the worship team come up. Um, and then at some point, we'll start playing some music. Gentlemen, if you would then start passing out the bread and cup. Um, and just hold them until the singing ends, and then we'll take communion together. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, again, we're grateful for the, the depth, um, the truth that we can find in your word. And we confess it is challenging. Um, it is difficult to hear these words. It is difficult to think that maybe we're not really as actively conquering as we thought we were. Um, and so I pray that as we have this time of quiet together, this quiet of, of contemplation and reflection, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would just come in and, and, and work us over. Show us where we need to, um, to remember. Show us where we need to repent and remember the gospel and how our lives are immeasurably better, forever changed because of the gift of salvation offered through Jesus Christ. And may we catch a renewed vision for what that means for us, a, a renewed desire in figuring out the works that you've created for us to do, how we're interacting with the world around us, the face we're putting on the community. We don't want it to be a face. We want it to be real, true, deep meaning and contact and impact with our community. How do we do that? What are we missing now? So I pray that we just we all give you permission to, to work us over and show us what needs to be done. Whether it's a minor correction or a major correction, Lord, I pray that we have the, the ears to hear what you have for us in this regard.